Welcome. Super stoked you are here. Uh, if you are new, we are doing a series called Red Letters, and it is really, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, the good news story about Jesus that Luke has, has composed. And it is, uh, uh, a section of Luke where Jesus is doing most of the talking. And if you have a Bible that has red letters, all of those red letters are Jesus's words. And so we're just calling it what it is. It's red letters. Except today is a little bit of a story about Jesus instead of just what he has to say. So would you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17, verse 11, and we're going to jump right in Luke 17, verse 11, uh, red letters. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance. And they called out in a loud voice, Master, or Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except for this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, at first glance, this story seems to be pretty cut and dry, right? Like as if the main principle of the story about Jesus' mercy and this, these lepers uh, teaches a simple lesson of gratitude. That we, if the main principle would be that we ought to be more like the Samaritan, less like the other nine, live lives of thankfulness, that the true path to Jesus is the path of gratitude. And I think that that's a perfectly biblical principle. I think the Bible teaches it, and I think it's a good thing to take away. If you take nothing else away from today, I'm sure the kingdom will be better for it. However, I don't think that's the main point. I think something far more significant is happening in this story. And as I read through Luke a couple times in the last couple weeks, I've found that in the context of the whole story, I think this, this little story seems to make a lot of sense. Now, authors of biblical narrative make their point by arranging the little stories within a big story. And you always have to keep in mind the two things. I mean, little story, big story, little story, big story. How does this little story make sense within the big story? So what I want to do for you this morning as we get into this story is to kind of zoom out and show you so far what Luke has been up to and to show you what's going on within Luke's larger narrative. So, it begins, the opening bit that Luke has is really this narration about John the Baptist and his birth and Jesus and his birth. And there's angels singing and choirs and uh, glory to God and uh, peace to men. And it's awesome. And really the opening be- bit is, is telling the reader that this story about Jesus is a continuation and a fulfillment and completion of the story of Israel because it begins with these old Jewish couples that can't have babies, which sounds an awful lot like what we read in Genesis and Samuel. And so the opening bit says, this is Israel's story come to its fulfillment in Jesus. And then the last bit of Luke closes with the events around the death and resurrection of Jesus, according to the eyewitnesses, uh, 
in their testimony, the, the people present at those events. And so the central part then, chapters 4 through 19, really divide into two main points, two main parts. And, and so it works kind of like this. Chapter 4 through 9 is all about Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee, the area up north in Judea. And it is primarily revealing who Jesus is. Chapters 4 through 9 ultimately reveal who Jesus is. He's the the spirit-anointed servant of Yahweh who comes and has authority to forgive sins and has authority over Sabbath and Torah and dietary regulations. And he's, he's the one who is a prophet, and it's remarkable. And then chapters 10 through 19 reveal what Jesus has come to do. So 4 through 9, who Jesus is, and 10 through 19, what he's come to do, what kind of community he's calling to himself. And the hinge is 951, where Jesus sets out resolutely for Jerusalem. Okay? And now... In the first bit, the first part, nine, four through nine, uh, there's this episode where, where we're asking the question, who's Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus comes on the scene and he does this thing to this, for this widow. She's got an only son and he's dead. And he raises up this widow's only son back to life. And all of the people are amazed and they're in awe. They're praising God and they say, a great prophet has come among us. So they realize Jesus is a prophet and he stands in the tradition of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the great writing prophets. But they had yet to realize that he's also the priest and king, the Messiah of God. So as the section closes, it comes to the end of the ministry in Galilee section and Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? The disciples answer, well, they think you're a prophet, like Elijah. Okay, well, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks and Peter says and confesses, you are God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah, the anointed of God. Peter gets it right, but Peter also fails to grasp the implications. And so Jesus immediately says, the Son of Man, which is a phrase from the book of Daniel that looks forward to God's Messiah who brings God's kingdom and is worshipped by the nations. So he says, the Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And again, Jesus is focused on Jerusalem. He's heading towards Jerusalem where he will accomplish these things. And again, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And as he begins his journey towards Jerusalem, the disciples fail to understand Jesus' words. Luke tells us that they did not grasp the meaning of Jesus' words and they were afraid to ask him about it. Like, I don't know what kind of rejection he's talking about, but if we don't look at it and we don't bring it up, maybe it won't happen, right? A little bit of denial going on. I just also want to say this. I think this is interesting about the Bible. Um, One of the reasons I find this collection of eyewitness testimony about Jesus so compelling and to be so reliable is because no one who's fabricating a story, no one who wants to make up a story, makes up stories that make them look like morons, right? You just don't do that. We want everybody to follow our new religion. Let's make up a bunch of stories that make us look really stupid. You just don't do that, right? So, um, all right, moving on. 
As Jesus travels, things get clearer and clearer. And at the end of chapter 19, he begins to answer why he's going to Jerusalem, why he has to be delivered and rejected. And in 19, he says, with Jerusalem just around the corner, he says to his disciples, the Son of Man, there's that phrase again, has come to seek and save what's lost. So his purpose is clear. He has a message and he has a mission, which is that in his death, in his suffering, he will find and save what is lost lost and in desperate need of rescue. And that's why Jesus tells these stories about lost coins and lost sheep and lost sons. And so the kingdom of God is for those on the margins, those who are lost, guys like Lazarus, like we saw last week on the margins. No one merely looking into religious ritual or moral education or just externals will find Jesus' message very compelling. But the ones who are lost, the ones who are on the outs, the ones in the margins will make their way into this kingdom that's breaking into their midst. And so the question in Luke so far that's looming large is this, who will respond to who Jesus is? Who will respond to his message? And the answer Luke gives us throughout all these little stories is that the ones who respond to Jesus are precisely the ones who have ears to hear, who see and perceive, who repent and follow. It's those who trust and obey, that grasp the kingdom and enter into it. And isn't this what Jesus has been saying all along? In his opening words of his ministry, his public ministry in Galilee, in chapter 4, he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, I'm the servant of Yahweh, the one anointed by his spirit to open the eyes of the blind, to cause the deaf to hear. So for Luke, he wants us to see something, that sight and insight, that hearing and understanding are inextricably tied together. And so... The point of all of this that we're tying together here is that it is our perception of who Jesus is and what he's done that makes all of the difference in our response to him. So we're going to see three things today in this passage, uh, three things that a proper perception of Jesus will do. A proper perception of Jesus will change our direction it will alter our foundation and it will utterly transform our attitude. So let's, let's look into this passage. Let's begin with verse 11. Take a look with me. Are you with me so far? Yeah, all right, good. Okay, let's go on to verse 11. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There again, we're reminded for the fourth time out of five times in this whole section that Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem and he's traveling along the border of uh, Samaria and Galilee. Okay, and so he's, he's not afraid of the turf wars there, and he's wandering uh, west to east. I guess for you it's, you know, yeah, it is, west to east. I could never be one of those weather people. I'd be like, where are we? Over, <laughs> I, just, I couldn't do it. I'm not that spatially oriented. And so uh, Jesus is moving west to east. He's, he's, he's headed along. He's meandering his way to Jerusalem. He's not in a hurry to get there. No one's in a hurry to get crucified, but he's intent and he's resolute and he's on the way and he's journeying toward Jerusalem and as he's nearing a village there are 10 men calling out in a loud voice Jesus master have pity on us right and we're told that they are lepers and it's this expression of trust and respect and honor and it's it's this request it's befitting of God you ask God for pity 
for mercy and grace because he is the one who gives it. And so we see them standing at a distance, Luke says, because remember, they're diseased, they're lepers. And, and in first century Jewish society, leprosy is a socially isolating disease. It keeps you at a distance from people. You cannot come near people because you're ceremonially unclean. You are not to come in contact with what is clean. And so according to the Torah, Leviticus 13 and Numbers 5, they are to remain at a distance. They announce themselves before they come near so you can scatter away from them and not become infected. And so they're ritually unclean, which meant that they're also unable to worship God at temple. So in other words, their condition says this about them, that they are spiritually and socially alienated. They're spiritually and socially marginalized, spiritually and socially on the outs. Can you think of anybody who fits that description in your life? Is there anybody around you that you know to be spiritually and socially alienated on the margins? And what is our attitude toward them? How do we treat them? Do we ignore them? Or what does Jesus do? See, Jesus takes notice of them. We'll get to that in a second. But according to Luke, I think this is fascinating. Luke says that there were ten men who had leprosy. And I think this is, it's minor, but it's so intentional. Because Luke doesn't define them by their isolation and their alienation. He defines them by their humanity first. So he says, you're not first categorized as lepers. You are men who had leprosy. They're still valuable bearers of the divine image that happen to be damaged by a broken world. And this is very important for you and for me today. Because as we walk through our lives, we need to see ourselves and others not first as maladies, but first as persons. We're always persons first. So you're not first a convict. You're not first your eating disorder. You're not first your depression. You are first a man or a woman who is made in God's image and also affected by some dimension of what theologians call the fall, where God created a very good world that went very wrong through rebellion and sin, and everything is out of joint as a result. And all things await Jesus to set all things right. And so... It's this way of seeing people that moves Jesus, that Jesus sees them is profound. They're calling out, it's a word for his audible senses, but Luke says that he sees them, that's his visual sense. And so he moves toward them, he sees them for who they are, he takes notice of them, he takes notice of their condition, and he does something about it. And this is also important for us because many of us move through life with the concept of God that if he's there at all, he is disinterested. He's looking somewhere else, and he's not all that in to me. And so... Maybe we think he's not taking notice, or if he does take notice, he fails to act, which is not the picture of God that we see in the face of Jesus. So Jesus sees them, and then he tells them to go show themselves to the priest. This seems weird to us. Why, why, if you are suffering from a physical disease, do you go find a priest? Well, because in first century Jewish society, you're holistic. You are not... uh, There isn't your religious life and your physical medical life. All of these things are intertwined, right? And so uh, 
and your priest happens to also be the public health official, right? This is the guy you go to who says, okay, yeah, sure, you can go back to worship now. And then you like, and you do your thing and, uh, right? Because they're trying to make sure there isn't an outbreak of leprosy in, uh, in their town or village. So, okay. So, uh, Jesus says, go back to the priest, go back to your public health official who will declare you to be clean or still leprous. So he simply tells them to act as if they are now what they will be declared in the future. You you get this. Go, show yourself to the priest. Why would you do that? Because you're already clean. So he's saying, go act now as if you already are what you will be declared. This is a huge New Testament theme. Act now as if the kingdom of God has already broken into your midst. Act now as if you've already been declared in the right, which is in God's final judgment. This is a New Testament principle. And as they went, they were cleansed. I think this is remarkable. One of the, one of the most remarkable truths about the Christian life is that we do not experience God's blessings prior to obedience. That we experience God's blessings and transformation as we obey. We don't sit around going, I'm going to wait for God to do me a favor and then I'll follow through. And if you're doing that, you're going to be waiting a while until you decide to get on board with the obedience program that Jesus has planned out for you. And so the, the way the Christian life works is we experience transformation as we obey. And uh, so the ten former lepers, these ex-lepers, head off down the road. Right? Uh, now one out of ten is perceptive. One of them takes notice of what's happened in a significant way. Luke says that as they went, they were cleansed, but one saw that he was healed. This is interesting, a little subtle contrast between the ten being cleansed and one recognizing his healing. And so he sees beyond the cleansing to the source of healing. And he's, he's ready to, to, to meet the giver of the gift and not just walk away with the gift. Let's take a look at the first thing I want to show you this morning. The first point is that it is our perception of who Jesus is that fundamentally alters our direction. It's our perception of who Jesus is that alters our direction. So for whatever reason, the other nine just go their own way. They just run off down the road as they were told because they stick to the path prescribed by their reading of the Torah, by their interpretation of Jesus's words. He said, go, go see a priest. And so they go. Do they go to Jerusalem? If they're Samaritans, do they go to Mount Gerizim? Where, where do they go? Well, they're off on their way to see a priest. But the Samaritan He perceives what's happened. He perceives who just healed him. And he does what Jesus says, but he interprets his words differently than the other nine. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests. But guess what? This Samaritan recognizes that Jesus is the true priest, that Jesus is the temple in person. And so his perception reorients him and he changes his direction. Instead of heading off his own way with the other nine, he turns around. He goes back. And the verb Luke uses to describe this man returning or coming back is one of Luke's favorite verbs, and it symbolizes this man's conversion to faith in Jesus. And the point here 
is this. It's that our perception, it's that his perception, his insight into who Jesus is and who Jesus was and what he came to do substantially changed his direction. When he saw, he came back. Do you see it? So the point here, or the question here for us is, have you encountered Jesus in a way that substantially alters the direction of your life? Have you met Jesus as a living reality such that what you are aimed for, what you are about, what you long for, and where you are headed is fundamentally transformed? So the question is, what is the aim of my life? Where is the tra- what is the trajectory of my life that I'm leading? What is it that I want? What am I headed towards See, the other nine former lepers were content with the benefits of Jesus without getting Jesus himself. This is a warning to us because they were content to move on with their lives, having received the benefits without the benefactor. They wanted God's stuff, but they didn't want God himself. And I have to say, friends, there is always this temptation for people who have experienced God's common grace, the common grace of a family or a good job or friendships or just the common grace of his daily provisions. And there is a temptation to mistake that grace as saving grace, to mistake this common grace as the grace of personal relationship with the living God. So we're content so often with the grace of his gifts while we remain at a distance from the grace of his person. And our direction goes unaltered because we're quite self-satisfied going our own way so long as we experience some of his benefits. Is that you today? Are you just kind of along for the blessing train as long as it suits your own agenda? Where are you traveling your own way? Where are the places where you're saying, I want to just have God's stuff? I don't need God in this area. Because the reality is we have to be on guard against wanting God for God's stuff and not wanting God for God. It's a grave mistake because at some point you end up very dissatisfied and you think you're dissatisfied with God, but what you are is you're dissatisfied with the spirituality of just wanting God's stuff. This is something that the medieval uh, writer Bernard of Clairvaux, who's a, a monastery leader in France, he wrote about this and he talked about the degrees of love uh, and one of the degrees of love, he says, is love of God for self-sake, where, where we depend on God. And this is a good thing. We depend on God, but we love God for what he can give us for our self-sake. He says this, this degree has to be transformed in the next degree of love, which is love of God for God's sake. Because when you love God for God, you end up with intimacy with God. You rejoice in his goodness, you taste his beauty, and you want him for him. My kids do this sometimes, my youngest especially, right? She's, she's learned, and any dad w- with girls, you know this, that there is a button you have that they learn how to push to get what they want. Mine does this. And she goes, Daddy, I was you. And she's just like, eh, that's her, I love you. It's translated, three-year-old. Uh, I was you, Daddy. And then what are the next words out of her mouth? Can I have a Wally, a wall, uh, wally pop? Yeah, can, I, can I have a Wally pop? I was you. Like, yeah, you love me as long as I'm handing out lollipops. And my desire for you is to grow, to just want me for me. But I understand that you're three and I need to facilitate your lollipop addiction. So, um, 
Have you perceived Jesus today? That's the question. Have you perceived him? Have you perceived what he's done and who he is? Has it altered the direction of your life such that the kingdom of God is a priority for you in your time, in your relationships, in your resources? Is moving toward becoming like Jesus, not just in the externals, but on the internal life of your heart? Is that a priority for you? Are you moving towards his mission and loving the people that he loves? Are you moving toward his kind of community? Is your direction affected because you're perceptive into who he is? The next thing we see in this text is that when we perceive Jesus rightly, when we perceive him for who he is, it utterly transforms our foundation. It alters our foundation. Notice this. The the Samaritan ex-leper throws himself before Jesus. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. It, It is literally an expression of worship to just fall prostrate before Jesus and praise him in a loud voice, which is the word we get megaphone from, megasphones. And it's just... Just amazing loud praise. At first he was loudly asking for mercy, and now he is equally loudly praising God. And he is worshiping Jesus. He's directing all of his praise to God at the feet of Jesus. The proper place for us, friends, to direct our praise to God is at the feet of Jesus, because as we learn in Colossians tomorrow night, is that Jesus is the... The, the expression, the perfect uh, image of the invisible God, that all of the fullness, the full fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. And so this man throws himself at Jesus' feet. He throws all of his weight onto a new foundation. When you throw yourself, you are putting your weight on a foundation. That's what's happening. My son is doing this thing now. I, I don't know where he learned it or why he thought this would be a good idea. Um, but it usually happens in public, uh, and it usually happens while I'm trying to carry something else. And he will sneakily back off behind me and get a running, very quiet jump start and leap with his full 60-pound body as high as he can, as hard as he can, as fast as he can, onto my back. And he just thinks this is the funnest thing in the world. Like, my single job description as his dad is to just catch him. Like, that's my gig. I jump, you catch. Like, he just knows innately, as a son, my job is to have fun jumping onto you, and it is your job to make sure I don't die. Like, not, not too shabby, right? And so, I, anyways, it's usually fun unless I topple over. But it's, it's interesting to me because he has so much freedom and confidence and joy in it. He just loves it. He just loves jumping and putting the full weight of his, his self onto my shoulders. And he loves it, and it scares the snot out of me. But... The question is, what do you throw yourself onto? What's, what's your foundation? What do you fall before? On what are you actually leaning the weight of your life into? You see, this story reveals that when we perceive Jesus rightly, it results in a new foundation for our lives. We put our weight on him. We throw ourselves before him. You know that this is what worship is about. We come to worship to say, God, you're God around here, and I'm putting the weight of my life into you and your personhood and what you've done for me. But the thing is, we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with this precisely because we live in a world that tells us an opposite story. It says, especially here in a church like ours, which is just, there's this pervasive success and pervasive affluence. In our zip code, have you noticed? And so when that is your reality, 
There is an ever-present temptation to live into the story that the world is telling, which is this, that you need to throw your weight onto the foundation of you, that you need to stand on your own success. Our world says lean on yourself, put your weight into your bank account. Put your weight into your stock options because they're not as bad as they used to be. Put your weight into your profession. Or maybe for you, it's you got to put your weight into your looks. I sorry for the irony there, but right? we, we, we put our foundation right into how we appear before others. And some of you, it's like, I got to look good so she'll love me. I got to look good so he'll love me. And your real foundation is their emotions towards you, which is a really, really messed up game, right? Because someday that, that doesn't work. Or, or maybe for you, it's, I, I got to put my weight into all of, all of my foundation and my education or my reputation. And these things are my foundation. But here's the reality for all of these things and many more is that they are foundations fully rooted in your performance. In other words, these foundations are about uh, you. They're performance oriented. And every one of these foundations will eventually crack. Because no foundation can carry the full weight of a human identity. No foundation can carry the full weight of what we are called to be as humans except for our Creator Himself. And a gospel orientation to life, a life directed towards Jesus, a life that's perceptive to Jesus, it will reject those foundations. And it will say, I'll throw myself on Jesus. It's His job description to catch me. Because he's pictured all throughout the Bible as a worthy foundation, as the rock, as the strong tower, as a mighty fortress, as the chief cornerstone. That's who Jesus is. So do you know what this means? It means that Christian faith is ultimately about something far deeper than mere externals or outward religion. It's, it's deeper even than a set of propositional beliefs because it goes down to the very foundations of ourselves and our lives where we stake our identities and our significance and our validation and our meaning and our security on Jesus. Deep down at a personal level. So the question is, has your perception of Jesus moved you at a personal level of change down to your foundations? One of the ways I tend to keep this area in check or this area ends up in check in my life is I've got to pay attention to what I'm worried about. Because what we worry about tells us what we're banking on. It's so typical to excuse worry as totally normal, but we live in an anxious age and it's, and it's not actually the way we're designed to live. Uh, in fact, uh, for a Christian person, for someone who deeply believes the gospel and is oriented to Jesus in their life, worry operates simply as a warning light. A warning light that says you're putting inordinate weight into something. So move it back toward the gospel. So if I'm worried about money or if I'm worried about uh, how others perceive me, it's usually an indication that I'm putting too much weight into those things. So we go back and we put our weight and our value and our security and our peace on Jesus. And the Bible says you can do that confidently. You can, you can be confident because he's faithful. Romans 3 talks, describes uh, Jesus as the faithful one. And because of his faithfulness, our trust in him results in our being made right. We can put our weight on him because he allowed the weight of human injustice, of human sin, of human evil to land on him. Which was Im- the impact of which was due each of us. But he took it instead and he took it in our place. 
So let me ask you a question. If Jesus does that for you, if he defeats enemies as big as sin and death and the devil for you, isn't he worthy of leaning on for so many smaller things? So the Samaritan saw. That's perception. And he came back. That's direction. And then he threw himself at Jesus' feet. That's a new foundation. And the third thing we see is that right perception of Jesus, right perception of Jesus radically changes our attitude. Our attitude. Luke says nothing about how the other nine were feeling after they left. We can only guess, you know. Woo! We're not lepers anymore. This is awesome. We can move on with our lives now. But he tells us that the Samaritan saw his healing, threw himself at Jesus' feet, and thanked him. We know that he praised God loudly, locating his praise at the feet of Jesus. So that shows us that right perception of Jesus leads to right worship of Jesus. In other words, if we are squabbling over worship, we are obscuring Jesus. Are you with me? Okay, let that sink in. It's important. And now we see that he is moved. He's, on the, he's moved on the level of his attitude. He could have been stoic before Jesus. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate being restored to health. This is going to work out great for my resume. And uh, that was awesome. Thanks. He could have come and just said, how did you do that? I'm very curious. Did you throw some pixie dust at me? Or did you? Was there an incantation? No. What does he do? He's passionate. He comes back and he's thankful. He throws himself and he says, thank you, right? He's thanking him. I wonder how many of us profess Christ on Sunday and we we sing the songs, but we have very little room for Jesus to speak into our daily attitudes the other six days of the week, right? Because, you know, it's very easy to compartmentalize. If your primary identity is a consumer, it's very easy to have a nasty attitude to your gas attendant, to your waiter, to your barista or whatever, But if your primary identity is as a Jesus follower, it affects your attitude. You see, thankfulness is an attitude issue. If perspective is how we think about our lives, attitude is how we feel about our lives. And so both are critical to the formation of character, becoming like Jesus on a journey with him. And and apparently the other nine had a perspective of entitlement. Their perspective led to entitlement. But the Samaritan seems to have a perspective of humility. And that perspective leads to an attitude of thankfulness. Are are you with me? This is significant for those of us who struggle with attitude problems. We have to look at what is my perspective and how am I perceiving things. Um, You can tell a, a Christian because a Christian won't settle for the right answers. They'll want the right life. See, you can have all the right answers, but unless Christ moves you at the level of your attitude, you'll never be that close to him. Unless Christ moves you at the level of your attitude, you'll never be that effective for him. See, grumpy Christians shouldn't be a thing. It shouldn't work. And it doesn't work because entitled or grumbling men and women do not make sense in an economy of God's grace, do they? It doesn't make sense. Look at what mercy we've been shown. Look at what grace we've been shown. Look at what generosity we've been shown. Look at what we have in Christ, all the resources of heaven. We have one another. We have something that transforms us, the Spirit of God at work in us. And so attitude problems don't make sense. And so to the degree that our attitudes don't reflect our salvation by grace, 
we have not properly perceived Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Amen? Does this hit you? It hits me. Is this, a, this is challenging stuff because I can have some really rotten attitudes and I'm very good at maintaining them while avoiding Jesus. If I avoid Jesus, I can maintain a great, awful, self-satisfied attitude. Right? But when I look at Jesus, when I direct my gaze at Jesus, when Jesus occupies my attention, when I perceive him for who he is, my attitude just kind of can't stand in his presence. Right? When I see his grace, I can't very well maintain my grudge. When I see his generosity, I can't very well maintain my stinginess. When I see his lordship, I can't very well maintain my fear and my worry. They melt away. My smugness melts away in the humility of Jesus. My uh, self-satisfaction melts away at his holiness and his glory. So when you look at him, the attitude of our lives naturally adjusts. So here's the question for us, and this is a challenge for you too. Ask the question this week, some self-examination, and ask these questions. What do my most frequent attitudes say about my understanding or my perception of Jesus? My most frequent ones. Not the one I'm having right now while I'm at church and everything's going okay, and somebody else is watching my kids, right? But right now, or my most frequent. And then the, the, another self-examination question is, if I were more aimed at becoming like Jesus, if I, was, if, if I let him be more my foundation, what attitudes would naturally result? Here's the challenge. Ask somebody this week. Give someone access to your life and say, what, what do I exhibit attitudinally that points to Jesus in my life? And what attitudes do I exhibit that point to a lack of attention of Jesus in my life. And if somebody asks you to do that for them, be really gracious and be really honest. Because uh, we're all in a process, right? So be gentle. But if somebody asks you, phrase it like this. Say, well, when you choose this, it shows this, right? Don't be universal. Don't be accusing. Just say, when you choose to live with this attitude, it shows this. And Maybe you don't know anybody. Maybe nobody is close enough to you to have access. And this is a great opportunity for you. It's a chance for you to recognize that I need people to have access to my life. It's an opportunity for you to move toward Jesus because he's best experienced in community. So Jesus, at the end of this, tells us uh, that this event is more than just about healing and gratitude. It's, in fact, about all we've been discussing because he says to the man, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to praise God except for this foreigner? And then he says to the foreigner, the Samaritan, he says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And the word for rise here is a word that early Christians would have immediately connected with resurrection. And so in other words, Jesus is saying and indicating to this man that he is now living a new life, that he was dead and is alive again, just like the prodigal. He says, your faith has made you well. That's what the NIV says. But literally in the Greek, it is saved. So you have uh, rise and go. Your faith has literally saved you. It is the word for salvation. So in other words, what this story is, is this story of the Samaritan's perception of Jesus is a, a picture of salvation. He's an outsider. He's a foreigner. He's the perfect example of what it means to embrace Jesus 
by faith and receive his salvation. It's a perfect picture of God's inclusive heart to bring about a new community by his grace alone. So the question today is where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? The reality is Jesus has come to bring about healing and cleansing, to bring about rescue and salvation. And he offers it to each of us. He says, I I don't want any more isolation or alienation for you. Come to bring about your healing. And maybe you're you're here and you've been in church for a long time, but you've never made Jesus your foundation. You've never said, I'm going to throw my weight onto him. The weight of who I am and who I'm becoming. Maybe you have had experiences of his benefits, but you've never embraced him personally. Um, Here's the question. Will you perceive Jesus today? Will you be a perceptive person? And will you see Jesus rightly for who he is in such a way that it reorients your direction, where you're headed, that it establishes a new foundation and fundamentally transforms your attitudes. Maybe for you it's the first time where you've perceived him as he truly is. You've perceived the grace he offers. Let me invite you to trust him today. To tell him you trust him. To tell him you surrender all you know of you, to all you know of him. You want him to move you in his direction, to be your foundation, and to transform you from the inside out. Maybe you've perceived Jesus rightly over the years and you've ordered your life around him, but there's an area of your life where you're crying out and you're saying, I, I need you to notice me, Jesus, and take pity on me. That there's this place in my life that's out of joint where I long for your healing, where I long for you to be my priest and to tell me to rise and go and remind me that my faith has saved me. If that's you, live that story. Move towards Jesus today. We're going to take a moment now to be with Jesus. And, and after I pray, the tables are open for us to receive communion. I want to invite you to take as long as you need to just sit before Jesus this morning. And, and when you're ready to take the elements, the bread and the cup. But sit with Jesus and ask him. Make a moment just before you and God and say, Hey, Lord, is there a place you want to reorient me? Is there a place that you want to reorient my direction? Is there a place where you want me to shift my weight from self-reliance and self-performance or others' reliance and other performance to you, to gospel confidence? I want to put my weight onto what you've done for me. Maybe there's a place where you say, God, I need to give you my attitude because I've got an attitude and it's not a pretty one and it doesn't reflect that I perceive you at all. In fact, I've eclipsed you entirely by my attitude. I want to lay it down and I want you to bring about new attitudes, attitudes of thankfulness and praise and all that comes naturally from keeping our gaze on Jesus. So let's do that. Let's go keep our gaze on Jesus, commune with him, talk to him. And when you're ready, come and take the bread. It reminds us of Christ's body given for us freely. Take the cup that reminds us Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins once and for all. Not to come back against you again and accuse you again, but to fully cleanse and redeem you for all time. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a good God. That there is no um, 
no place so far that you cannot come toward us and redeem us. And we, we pray that, that you would open our eyes, that we'd have insight and perception into the reality of Jesus and the supremacy of Christ in all things. And as a result, we would live lives moving toward you, founded, rooted, and resting on you and full of the fruit that comes from knowing you. So we, we, we thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. We thank you for what you've done. And we, we worship you. And all who love him say, Amen. When you're ready, come and receive the bread and the cup this morning.